I'm Luke. I'm John, and you seem very pleased with yourself. Booyah! I'm happy because we're back with a proper episode after all that meta-nonsense last time. The meta the better? Not. We're doing it properly this time, and it's back to the 90s, having it large, mad for it. They spent their whole lives watching TV, now they're sharing their opinions with you, because now they want to have some fun, with a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado, they'll choose the shows that you want to view. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John, and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the commissioner. Luke, thank you for coming in. Last time I delivered an insightful audio essay demonstrating how Galton and Simpson's seminal Steptoe and Son was the origin of all sitcoms, up to and including the most popular British comedies of the 1980s. This time I've asked you to pitch a sitcom for the 90s that builds on that Steptoe and Son formula. Tickle my slot with something a bit naughty and make me feel like I did in the 90s. You sure? (laughs) Yes, come on, you're so insistent on following the format. What's your first pitch? Well, I'm going to start with a sketch, Men Behaving Likely Ladly, and this is with Harry and Paul in celebration of BBC Two's 50th anniversary in 2014. Hey, Terry, what have you done to me bike? I've bumped into a bus and busted, Bob. I'm very sorry, you'll get your money. Hoblum in Nora, not supposed to be meeting Thelma at pictures in half hour. You going to hold a hand? I've only known her eight months. <laughs> I reckon she'd love it. Hey, Terry, wash your mouth out with carbolic, why do you? Hey. <laughs> so that's a callback to one of the shows we talked about last time. Yes. And it's a call forward to the first show I'm going to talk about today. Oh, nicely linked. Thank you. Like the sketch, our first show features Harry Enfield. It's Men Behaving Badly. Oh, yes. Now, this show is made by Hartswood Films, and it was produced by Beryl Virtue. Mm-hmm. And there's another link back here, because she was a school friend of Alan Simpson's, and she joined the writer's agency he was part of, Associated London Scripts, as secretary, and later business affairs manager and agent. So everything does go back to step so. It really does. ALS was set up as a non-profit cooperative writers agency by Eric Sykes, Spike Milligan, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. Oh, God, I bet their business meetings were fun. Yeah. And Virtue practically invented the idea of selling a sitcom format to another country to remake it. For example, Steptoe and Son becoming Stanford and Son in America. Oh, OK. Now, Men Behaving Badly was created and written by Simon Nye. He had written a novel of the same name in 1989, and Virtue persuaded him to turn it into a TV series. Yeah. Nye wrote the series as a genuine sitcom, the comedy coming from the situation they're in. 
And he said, I don't do mad plot-driven Faragos. You have to allow your characters time to talk. Right. The first two series were commissioned by Thames and shown on ITV in 1992 in the spring and the autumn. Oh, they got two series in the same year. Absolutely. Oh. And the show revolves around flat owner Gary Strang yeah. and his lodger Dermot Povey. Yes. Harry Enfield was recruited first, playing Dermot. Yeah, I mean, it was a Harry Enfield vehicle as first envisaged, wasn't it? Well, yeah, they wanted a big name in the show, and they thought of Harry. He was obviously really big at the time with all the stuff he'd done on Saturday Live. Huge, huge name. Mm. And it was Enfield who recommended Martin Clunes for Gary after he'd seen Clunes in a play. Right. Gary works as the manager of a security sales office, and as part of the show, we see his boring life at work and his even more boring <laughs> colleagues, George and Anthea. Yes. Dermot, on the other hand, bums around. Gary gets frustrated when Dermot is late with his rent. Yeah. There's Dorothy Bishop, played by Caroline Quintin. She's a nurse and Gary's love interest. Yeah. He calls her Noodle and she calls him Donkey. <laughs> nice. And in the first episode, Deborah Burton, played by Leslie Ash, moves into the flat upstairs. Yeah. And both Dermot and Gary are attracted to her. So right from the start, you've got the central idea, right, that Gary's got a boring job, Dermot bums around and has a lot of fun, Gary's in a relationship, Dermot's free and single, and they both fancy other women. That situation just plays out week after week. Yeah, that is the basic situation of the show. Dorothy initially dislikes Deborah, going as far as describing her as Miss Wet Dream, <laughs> but they become friends over their shared frustration of Gary and Tony's behaviour. Hang on a second, who's Tony? Well, Enfield wasn't comfortable with the sitcom format and he left after the first series. Right. And it's actually suggested he wanted to leave after a disastrous pilot, but he couldn't because he was under contract. Yes. His character left on a round-the-world motorbike tour, leaving Gary to find a new lodger. Right. And that new lodger was Tony Smart. Yes. Played by Neil Morrissey, a womanizer. Sorry, a womanizer. Tony <laughs> is well-meaning, but he's pretty thoughtless. I mean, I don't want to quote Half Man, Half Biscuits every single episode of this podcast, but in their song Bottleneck at Kapil Korig, they suddenly stopped the lyrics to say Neil Morrissey's a knobhead. <laughs> Is that fair or not? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think Les Dennis would probably agree. <laughs> Tony was even more attracted to Deborah, and she was initially interested, although Tony's immaturity quickly frustrated her. I remember watching the first series. I was a big Harry Enfield fan, and then I remember seeing a trailer for the second series, and I was like, Oh, that stupid get-off Boone is replacing him. That's going to be terrible. And then, to be fair, from watching the first episode of the second series, I immediately thought this chemistry seems to work better. I think there was real-life chemistry, and that came across in the characters that they played. Yeah. So, yeah, the show was on ITV, as we've said, but after Thames lost their franchise at the end of 1992, ITV axed the show, saying its audience of 7 million wasn't enough. <laughs> Different times. ITV obviously thought, oh, we'll come along with another sitcom, it'll be fine. Yeah. How many sitcoms has ITV done since then? Big hits, not very many. Not very many at all. The BBC picked up the show in 1994, and they put the show in a post-Watershed slot, and this allowed them to up the bad behaviour. Yes. So, you know, instead of wearing the same socks two days running... We'd see Tony and Gary drink and fart in a birthing pool. <laughs> Tony had this birthing pool because he'd got a job helping out, doing home births in an attempt to impress Debs. Right. And on the BBC, it achieved audiences in excess of 10 million, and it oh, ran okay. for four series. Right, so it really did up the ante. 
massively so. And the BBC went as far as repeating the second ITV series. I mean, unheard of that a show that originally went out on ITV, one, it would transfer to the BBC, but two, the BBC would show the ITV episodes. Yeah, it's interesting that they started with the second series, though, so the whole Harry Enfield Dermot thing is, is pushed into history. Written out of it, yes. Yeah. And it's sometimes seen as a precursor to 90s lad culture. Yeah. The protagonists were actually older than your typical loaded reader. Yeah. The men were always shown to be stupid, and they got their comeuppance. Dorothy and Deborah always came out on top. Mm-hmm. Now, at the core of Gary and Tony's bad behaviour was drinking and watching TV. Right. Do you know how many hours a week you spend in front of the television? Two and a half. One. <laughs> I counted recently, Gary, 52. Oh, come off it. I'd have to get in from work and switch on the telly immediately and then watch it every night till after midnight and still put in 12 hours a day at the weekend. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you learn a lot from the television, don't you? I mean, I've got all my knowledge of the world through the TV. <laughs> Where's Bosnia, Tony? Uh, no, see, that's news. Then what's the news? I mean, that sounds like how we were living life in the 90s, doesn't it? Seven and a half hours on average of watching TV doesn't seem wild to me. No, it, it also dates it, doesn't it? Because people wouldn't be doing that today. No, that's right. I think peak men behaving badly was in 1995 when Tony and Dorothy ended up sleeping together. Mm. And Beryl Virtue said this was her favourite moment. She said, in the morning, they're trying to work out from each other. Was I good? <laughs> There's this bang at the door. It's Gary. The audience gasped and I thought, right, we've got you. <laughs> and then from 1997, Debs and Tony were in a relationship and the sitcom effectively became two couples. Yeah. The men were behaving less badly and, and the series lost something. So many TV series that are based on a will-they-won't-they they relationship jump the shark at the point that they do. Yeah. You see the chemistry change. It happened in Moonlighting. It happened in Friends. It happened in Cheers. So many examples of how things just go wrong once you break that tension. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way of ending the series. Yeah. But yes, to then keep going with more episodes, very tricky. Yeah. And the series ended with a mini-series over Christmas 1998. Mm -hmm. It did feel as though it had run its course. Although that said, they did manage to offend with a gag about masturbation on Christmas Day. Oh, nice. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad they went out offensively. Yes. In the Barrel Virtue tradition, Men Behaving Badly was remade in America for NBC. Yeah. It was considered too vulgar for American tastes and was pulled partway through the second season. Right. There were actually almost as many episodes in America as there were here. <laughs> That's wild, isn't it? A really short-running American series has as many episodes as what we consider a really long-running British series. Yeah, crazy. There were 42 episodes here and 35 in America. Right. Simon Nye has written loads of stuff since, including the Reggie Perrin remake with Martin mm. Clunes in the title role. Yeah. And Nye wrote four pantomimes for ITV between 1998 and 2002. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. Gary and Tony returned for a one-off sketch on Channel 4's Stand Up to Cancer in 2014 yeah. to raise awareness of testicular cancer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that Men Behaving Badly, it was cheeky and it was on the edge. But it didn't really go beyond the edge. It wasn't threatening. It was a mainstream sitcom that had some slightly blue themes, wasn't it? Exactly. 
Now, a more laddie version of Men Behaving Badly was Game On. Yes. And that ran for three series on BBC Two between 1995 and 1998. Yes. The show was about the lives of London flatmates Matthew Malone, Mandy Wilkins and Martin Henson. Yes. Matt is the unemployed owner of the flat, and that was paid for out of inheritance. Yeah. And he has acute agoraphobia. He keeps a surfboard in his flat, which he regularly waxes, even though he will never use it. Yeah. And he makes up wild stories about his past and about what he's been doing while the others are at work. Yeah, and this makes it real classic, classic Steptoe and Son style sitcom territory because he cannot leave the flat. So it leaves you in that one setting. Convenient, isn't it? Yeah. He describes himself as a double hard bastard (laughs) and everyone else is a tosser. Yeah. Matt was played by Ben Chaplin in the first series. Yeah. And he left for series two, having been offered a role in a Hollywood film. Yeah. And he was replaced by Neil Stuke. Yes, and they didn't do the men behaving badly thing where they replaced him with a different character fulfilling essentially the same function. They kept it as the same character with a different actor. And those two actors, they could not look more different from each (laughs) other. Completely different. Ben Chaplin, very handsome, leading man sort of vibe about him, right? Yeah. Neil Stook, good comedy actor, and he may well be funnier. I don't know if he's got more natural sort of comedy chops to him, but completely different actors who play the role in a completely different way. Yeah. In fact, it's lampshaded in Stuke's first episode when the other characters complained about the recasting of a main (laughs) character in Roseanne. That's clever. Of course, in Men Behaving Badly, it was the lodger who left. Yes. He's easier to replace. In Game On, it's the person who owns the flat. Yeah, and if he's also got to be agoraphobic, etc., it'd be a bit much if you brought in another character who Who happens. Yeah. Yeah. Martin was played by Matthew Cottle. He's passive and Matt's doormat. Yeah. And Samantha Janus, now Womack, played Mandy. Yes. Mandy was the clever one, but is stuck in a cycle of temporary jobs. Yeah. She's also sex mad. Yeah. And of course, Samantha Janus represented the UK at the 1991 Eurovision Song Contest with a message to your heart, finishing 10th. Yeah. The show's theme tune was Where I Find My Heaven by the Gigolo Aunts. Yes. It reached number 29 in the charts. Okay. If I can only have one show out of Men Behaving Badly or Game On, I'm going to have to go with Men Behaving Badly. But I think Game On is sort of an interesting little tangent there. Yeah, so two shows that were 90s lad culture influenced and influencing, two flat share comedies. I can definitely see why you've brought them together. But to be clear, your pitch is Men Behaving Badly. That's right. Okay. You don't mind if I just fry up some sausages while we chat, do you? It's a bit weird. Well, these vegan ones take ages to cook, and I'm going to have them with a bit of pineapple for a very 90s party buffet. Okay. What's your next pitch? My next pitch is Ab Fab. Absolutely fabulous. Yes. Now, this was originally a French and Saunders sketch, Modern Mother and Daughter, in 1990. Mm-hmm. And in that sketch, Jennifer Saunders plays Adriana, a middle-aged single mother who is reliant on the emotional and financial support of her teenage daughter, Saffron, played by Dawn French. Saffron behaves like a middle-aged woman. Right, yeah. Safi's busy completing her A-level homework while Adriana is trying to get her to join a party downstairs and partake in drugs with her. And the sketch ends with Saffron giving condoms to her mum. Right. So complete role reversal. Yeah. Saunders turns the sketch into a series, Ab Fab. Yeah. And that started on BBC Two in 1992. Uh Uh-huh. Saunders continued to play the mother, but renamed Adina Monsoon, 
a heavy drinking, drug abusing PR mogul. Right, and that name, Adina Monsoon, is derived from her real life husband, Adrian Edmondson, because one of his nicknames was Eddie Monsoon. Yeah, that's right. And Edmondson performed the theme tune, This Wheel's on Fire, yeah. with Julie Driscoll. Right, yeah. And that was a song that was originally written by Bob Dylan and Rick Danko. That's right. Now, Saunders was inspired by Banana Rama, who she was friends with after collaborating with them on the 1989 comic relief single Help. Yeah. Saunders said of them, Banana Rama were the hardest drinking girls I ever met. I remember one of them opening a cab door and coming out arse first onto the <laughs> pavement and thinking it was the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> Love Banana Rama, man. Turns out they love the vodka. <laughs> the daughter is still the straight lace saffron or saffy. Yes. But now played by Julia Sawala. Whom we met when we talked about Press Gang. Indeed. And Eddie would call Safi sweetie and darling. And of course, Safi was disapproving of all of her mother's antics. Yes. And our steptone son thesis of two people trapped together is right here. Much of the action takes place in Eddie's kitchen, and it's the daughter who despairs of her dirty old mum. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Joanna Lumley plays Eddie's best friend since school, the ultra-bitchy yet vulnerable Patsy Stone. Yes, a revelation, wasn't it? Her return to the mainstream in this role. The public perception of her was completely different from the character of Patsy Stone, and people were amazed at this uh, interpretation she did of this character. Yeah, it absolutely remade Joanna Lumley, didn't it? Yeah. Patsy is an ex-model and current fashion magazine exec. Yeah. Her drug and alcohol use is far greater than Eddie's. Yes. And if Tony and Gary are men behaving badly, Adina and Patsy are women behaving badly. What will you drink if you stop drinking? I should drink water. It's a mixer, Patsy. We have it with whiskey. <laughs> what it's like. I mean, you've given up drinking before. Worst eight hours of my life. I think Eddie and Patsy are written to be very finely balanced. On the one hand, they're outrageous and you want to ridicule them. On the other, they're outrageous and you just want to have as much fun as they do. <laughs> yeah, I always think this dynamic's interesting when you have the main character and then you have their friend. And their friend is basically a more extreme version of some of the worst aspects of the main character. Yeah. Because it allows you to see that your main character is developing somewhat isn't quite as bad as they could be. I think you see the same thing with Frasier and Niles, for example, in Frasier. Yeah, you see the same thing with John and Luke. <laughs> yeah. Patsy was involved in a sex scandal with an MP. Right. But it wasn't the sordid details of the affair that upset her. Illicit passion for MPs, posh clothes, my gal pal. Oh, God. Shocked wife of MP keeps silent. Bitch! Bitch. Yeah, let them write what they want. Continued on page five. I mean, I shall just oh, yeah. rise above it. I shan't mm. let this thing affect me in... Bastard! No, no, no! no. Watch it! Watch it! Watch it! Watch it! Watch it! Close no, no, further, further. No, Patsy said... Yes. 47. Ah! I'll sue! There's nothing more 90s than a tabloid scandal about MPs having extramarital affairs, is there? No, absolutely. Patsy had an assistant bubble played by Jane Horrocks. Yes. Bubbles totally useless, completely mad. Yeah. Horrocks was absolutely brilliant in the role, and frankly, yeah. she stole any scene that she was in. Yeah. I turned on the, hmm, whatchamacallit this morning. Radio? I want to say telephone. <laughs> no, it's not right. <laughs> it's not right. You look at it. Television. That's it. Good morning, television. Hello. 
Hello! Which I don't normally do, because I find myself falling back to sleep like that. And anyway, they said, leave home now. There's a strike on the buses. It was really urgent. So I did, when I got here hours ago. On the tube? No. I only live down the road. I walk here. <laughs> so they must be bonkers. The fourth regular is Eddie's mother, played by June Whitfield. Mm-hmm. She's detested by her daughter, but adored by her granddaughter, who sees her as the mother Eddie wasn't. Right. Eddie insults her mother a lot, but these insults don't seem to affect her. Indeed, she just retaliates with insults of her own, and she'll often mention embarrassing facts from Eddie and Patsy's childhood Sasafi. Patsy has barbed comments for the mother too, but again, she's there with the put-down. Still blonde then? <laughs> Later on, it's revealed that Mother had been a sort of surrogate to Patsy, and Patsy does show her some respect. There have been quite a few classic moments over the series. For example, when Eddie buys an isolation tank, but she has to take her mobile phone in with her. <laughs> Patsy, she goes to the office so rarely she gets lost between the reception and her desk. <laughs> Eddie often worries about the design of her kitchen. Services, darling, where have my services gone? and surfaces. I, I don't want this, darling. Look, I don't want this. I don't want things on places like that. Things on places. I don't want that. You need surfaces. <laughs> Patsy gets an appearance on Breakfast TV as a fashion advisor, but is caught like a rabbit in the headlights and unable to say anything. Dawn French played the perky Breakfast TV host. Later on, we'll be taking an in-depth look at acute schizophrenia between 9.20 to 9.23. <laughs> and after Lizzie, what else? Euthanasia. <laughs> the show moved to BBC One for series two in 1994. So always a sign that something's been a big hit on BBC Two. Exactly. During that second series, the show arguably went from laughing at the celebrity class to becoming a place for them. Yes. Perhaps a party that the audience wasn't invited to. This is one of the problems about any comedy show that is set in the media. I think there was a similar thing with Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. People can't warm to it quite as much because it feels a bit like successful people patting themselves on the back for all their famous friends. Yeah. But that said, Series 2 featured a guest appearance from Lulu, and I think she fitted into the Ab Fab world perfectly, and she would appear again in later episodes. The idea that she was the go-to celebrity that a PR company could get to turn up to any event certainly seemed about right. Yeah, and obviously Lulu played along perfectly. Yeah. There are also classic moments in that second series, perhaps most famously when Eddie's house burns down and Patsy is found unscathed in the ruins, still smoking, which of course <laughs> was no doubt the cause of the fire. Yeah. For series three in 1995, the show took a slightly different direction as the characters were fleshed out a bit we meet Patsy's sister Jackie, played by Kate O'Mara. Mm -hmm. She's so mean, you actually have sympathy for Patsy. Yeah. The original run of the show ended with a couple of specials in 1996. Uh-huh. But it came back, and two series and two more specials were made between 2001 and 2004. Right. And then a 20th anniversary miniseries of three episodes was made for Christmas and New Year in 2011-2012. Okay. And then it went to Hollywood, a movie was made in 2016. Yeah, so the classic British sitcom makes a movie misstep. I mean, the movie's okay, but it, it didn't capture the height of the early series, I don't think. Uh -huh. Attempts were made to make the show in America, but they failed. But Saunders and Lumley did appear in character as Eddie and Patsy in an episode of Roseanne. So Absolutely Fabulous exists in the same fictional universe as Roseanne. Exactly. <laughs> 
The original three series were directed by Bob Spears. Yes. And he was the lead director on Press Gang. Yes. And of course, you've already mentioned that's where Julia Sawala worked. Yeah. The show was script edited by Ruby Wax. Mm -hmm. And she really polished Saunders' script. And I think some of the put-downs came from her. She had starred with Jennifer Saunders in a previous sitcom, hadn't she? Girls on Top back in Mm. the 80s also starred Dawn French. Yes, that's right. I remember when Absolutely Fabulous came out, Jennifer Saunders said something along the lines of, you know, we've moved on and progressed and it's no longer a sitcom just with a bunch of women shouting at the top of their voices at each other. And I was like, that is true because you've got a really good cast of actors here with Joanna Lumley, Joan Whitfield and Julia Sawalha. But there's still one person in it who's just shouting all the lines at the top of their voice. And that's Jennifer Saunders. Yeah. I mean, we've joked about it being women behaving badly, but it, you know, it was definitely a sitcom that gave a different perspective. And it was one of the first times that women were sort of shown on TV being outrageous and enjoying themselves. Yeah. And I think it made some men uncomfortable. You know, it depicted a world that men aren't in. Yes, yeah. Of course, metrosexual males absolutely loved the show. Yeah. There were 39 episodes in total, and whilst it was sometimes affected by its huge popularity in a negative way, overall it was a very funny show. Yeah. Certain things have sort of entered the national consciousness. Mm-hmm. Ab Fab had its own cocktail, Bolly Stolly, that's champagne and vodka. God. Harvey Nicks is the shop du jour, darling. Yeah. And of course, you should always be wearing La Croix. Yes. But that's Ab Fab. Yes. Um, what's your third pitch? So we just need to take a moment, John. Um, some of the electric cables in this studio have come loose. I'm just going to have to rewire them. All right, can you be careful, though, because that's quite a dangerous job for you to do by yourself. And don't disturb my sausages, because they're just starting to brown nicely. I'll leave your sausage alone. Now, for my third pitch, I'm looking at something quite different. Mm -hmm. Father Ted. Okay, good. Well, at least we're moving away from the BBC. Yes, it's a rare example of a successful sitcom that isn't on the BBC, because Father Ted was on Channel 4. Yeah. And it ran from 1995 until 1998. Yeah. Father Ted moves the concept of two people trapped together to a remote island. Yeah, that's a great way of keeping people trapped. Exactly. And as the title suggests, it's about a Catholic priest, mm-hmm. Ted Crilly. Yeah. And he's been exiled to Craggy Island. Yeah. A small island off the coast of Galway. Yeah. Ted's morally dubious, but he's likeable. And he's trapped with the stupid but innocent Father Dougal Maguire. That's right. And although it's not only the two of them on the island, it does feel like they're the central two. They're the the step-toe and son who are stuck together. Yeah. Also living there are dirty old man father Jack Hackett. Yes. And over-enthusiastic housekeeper Mrs Doyle. Both of whom are very funny, but they're sort of not characters in their own right, so much as things for the characters to respond to, right? Because they're just unchanging. They're, They're a pair of walking catchphrases. It's exactly what they are. They are the catchphrases that are then the foil of Ted and Dougal. Although in Father Jack's case, he's not walking very much. (laughs) No. The character of Father Ted was originally created by one of the show's writers, Arthur Matthews. Yeah. He played in a U2 tribute act, the Joshua Trio, Uh and played Father Ted between songs at gigs. Yes. Matthews, along with bandmate Paul Woodfall, wrote a comedy radio show for RTE, called the Starship Roisin, mm-hmm. a parody of Star Trek. Okay. And among various characters, Woodfall played Captain Bono, mm-hmm. and Matthews, the ship's chaplain, Ted. Oh, okay. The character first appeared on TV in 1989 on a late-night variety show called Nighthawks on RTE2. Right. Matthews then teamed up with a different writer to work on a mockumentary series, Irish Lives. Yeah. 
The series wasn't made, but one of the episodes was to be about Father Ted. Right. Legendary comedy producer Jeffrey Perkins, then at Hattrick Productions, suggested they turn Father Ted into a traditional sitcom. Okay. And at first, Matthews and his co-writer wanted to make Father Ted ironic, almost an anti-sitcom, but Perkins encouraged them that if they got the characters and situation right, they didn't need to do that. That's interesting. It's definitely got some of the anarchy of something like The Young Ones about it, but nonetheless, when it comes down to it, it is a traditional sitcom. Yeah. But it shows, as the young ones did, that you can have anarchy in a traditional sitcom and it'll yeah. be funny. Yeah. Father Ted was played to perfection by Dermot Morgan. Yes, and it's interesting that they brought in Dermot Morgan to play the role and that Arthur Matthews didn't decide to play Ted himself. I think Matthews probably could have played the role, but Morgan was this great comic actor and yeah. probably, if we're honest, took it to a, a level that nobody else would have done. I agree. Morgan's first TV appearance was on RTE's The Live Mic, a comedy variety show that ran between 1979 and 1982. Right. One of his characters was Father Trendy. Oh, okay. A trying-too-hard-to-be-cool hippie priest, <laughs> taking the piss out of modernism in the Catholic Church in Ireland post-Vatican II. So that's interesting. Both the, the show's co-creator, Arthur Matthews, and Dermot Morgan, its star, had independently been doing comedy stand-up as priest characters. Yes. I mean, I suppose if you're going to take the piss out of something in Ireland, yeah. a lot of people might want to, to do that out of the Catholic Church. Certainly at that time, yeah. Yeah. Morgan scored the Christmas number one in Ireland in 1985 with the song Thank You Very, Very Much, Mr. Eastwood. <laughs> based on how boxer Barry McGuigan would gushingly thank his manager Barney Eastwood after every fight. The 1980s and how much a part of our culture boxing was, yeah. it, it just feels like something that has passed, doesn't it? It's not the same yeah. any, anymore. He then co-wrote and starred in RTE Radio's Scrap Saturday, right. a Saturday morning comedy show mocking Ireland's establishment. Uh, satirical Saturday morning comedy shows on the radio also feels like something that unfortunately wouldn't happen these days. I think that's right. Now, Ted was the idiot brother sent off to the priesthood while the favourite son became a doctor. Right, yeah. And he got posted to a Wexford parish where mm -hmm. he was investigated for stealing money from a child's pilgrimage to Lourdes to fund his own trip to Las Vegas. <laughs> you say, that money was just resting in my account. He did. <laughs> Formerly he got off, but Bishop Brennan banished Ted to the remote craggy island until all the money was accounted for. Right. Ted is stuck on the island with Father Dougal Maguire, as we've mm -hmm. said, played by Ardell O'Hanron. Another great performance. Absolutely. And the writers took inspiration from Stan Laurel in thinking about Dougal's behaviour. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Ted makes Dougal keep a list of things that don't exist. <laughs> Unfortunately, God might become a future entry on that list <laughs> because Dougal sometimes questions his faith. Do you ever have any doubts about the religious life? Is your faith ever tested? Any doubts you've been having about any aspects of belief? Well, you know the way God made us all, right? And uh, he, he's looking down at us from heaven and everything. Uh -huh. And then his son came down and saved everyone and all that. Yes. And when we die, we're all going to go to heaven. Yes. What about it? Well, that's the bit I've trouble with. <laughs> Father Jack Hackett, played by Frank Kelly, is an elderly, foul-mouthed alcoholic with a straightforward vocabulary of feck, arse, drink and girls. Yes. He can identify a bottle of wine from just the sounds of the bottle <laughs> clinking. He has very poor personal hygiene, mm. with scabs around his mouth, 
stains on his dog collar and rotten teeth. Yeah. His annual bath causes Ted much <laughs> stress. Worried about how Jack will behave when the bishops visit, Ted trains Jack to answer difficult questions with one of the best lines of the show. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> A phrase I still use. <laughs> the priest's housekeeper is Mrs. Doyle, played by Pauline McLean. Yeah. McLean had actually worked with Dermot Morgan on the RTE radio show Scrap Saturday. Right. Mrs. Doyle's first name is never spoken in the show. If her name is about to be mentioned, there'll be some sudden background noise to mask it. Draft script did have the name Joan in it, though. Oh, okay. Mrs. Doyle is repressed, neurotic. She has an over-the-top zeal for her work. Yeah. Always ready to serve tea, sandwiches, or cake. Yes. And she's very keen to ensure that you get your fill. Yes. Go on, 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 go on. And one time, Ted wakes up during the night to find Mrs. Doyle standing there ready with tea. She's been up waiting for three years. It's just in case he wants tea in the night. Yes. She also brings in physical comedy, for example, repeatedly falling off the windowsill or indeed through the window when trying to put up Christmas decorations. Right. We see many other priests during the series, including yeah. a young Graham Norton. Yeah. He played Father Noel. Yes. Do you know what Noel's surname is? It's Furlong, wasn't it? Yeah, Father Noel Furlong. And one of the most memorable episodes was Hell, where Ted and Dougal go on their annual holiday. Yes. They end up in a tiny caravan, but this has got double booked with the annoyingly chirpy Father Noel taking his youth group there. Oh, Furlong. The episode also features Ted trying and failing to explain perspective to Dougal with the aid of model cows. Yes. Okay, one last time. These are small, but the ones out there are far away. <laughs> small, far away. If I had to choose a favourite moment from all of Father Ted, that would be right up there. Yeah, it is just a classic, isn't it? Yeah. And another classic is when Ted and Dougal enter a song for Ireland. Oh, yeah, that's my other favourite bit. This <laughs> is to win the chance to represent Ireland at the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. They write their own song, My Lovely Horse, but aren't satisfied with the tune, so they steal the melody from an old song they believe nobody remembers the B-side to the song that allegedly finished fifth in A Song for <laughs> Norway, 1976. Yeah. This backfires as the song is more well-known than they thought, and they end up performing their original version of My Lovely Horse. Yeah. Reflecting real life, Ireland is desperate not to win Eurovision again due to the cost. <laughs> so it's fixed for Ted and Dougal to win over their rival, Father Dick Byrne. Yeah. The episode ends with My Lovely Horse getting nil poids from every country at Eurovision. <laughs> and now you know who wrote My Lovely Horse and the Father Ted theme tune? The, the good version of My Lovely Horse and the Father Ted theme tune were written by the Divine Comedy, weren't they, Neil Hannon? That's right, yes. The writers initially asked Pulp to write the theme tune, but when they said no, they contacted Hannon. Yeah. And Hannon originally wrote a jaunty piece which was rejected, and his second attempt became the theme. Yes. And that theme was used as the basis for a, a real song. Yeah, Songs of Love, yeah, a really good song. Yeah, and the rejected theme became A Woman of the World. Oh, I didn't realise that. 
Now, we've said that the show is set on Craggy Island off the west coast of Ireland. Yeah. And two real-life Aran Islands had a row, which better represented Craggy <laughs> Island. <laughs> Dubious honour. Inish Moor and Inish Ear. Right. And this mattered because there was going to be a 2007 Father Ted festival. Okay. And so one island had to be declared the representative of Craggy Island. Right. And it was decided by a five-a-side football match. That's a civilised way to settle a dispute, I think. Inish Moor won 2-0. So they got to represent Craggy Island then in that Father Ted festival? They did. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Despite being a small island, Craggy Island features a caravan park, (laughs) a picnic area, a post office, a pub, Mm -hmm. a cinema, an internet cafe, a crazy golf course, Mm -hmm. a greyhound racing track. Getting a bit much. And its own Chinatown. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's got whatever the plot requires, hasn't it? Yeah. Now, in the episode where we learn about Chinatown, Ted inadvertently appears to do an impression of Hitler in the window Mm -hmm. due to a piece of black tape attached to the glass, leading to the immortal line, I hear you're a racist now, father. (laughs) Yes. In the Christmas episode, which is a modern TV classic, Ted and Dougal get lost in a department store with six other priests. (laughs) Yes. We got a bit lost in the store, that's why we're here. We got a bit lost. (laughs) I suppose that's why you're here as well. Lost? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's it. That's it, exactly. We lost. lost. um... (laughs) I don't suppose you know the way out of here. It's uh, Ireland's biggest lingerie section, I understand. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I read that somewhere. Series 3 was always intended to be the last, Yeah, but the day after filming concluded, Dermot Morgan died of a heart attack. That's just incredible. Yeah, such a brilliant life, cut so short. Such a loss. Yeah. Ardlo Hanlon went on to appear in My Hero and Death in Paradise. Yeah. And Arthur Matthews went on to co-create and co-write The Wonderful Big Train, which we talked about in our Sketch Shows episode. That's right. And I think the 25 episodes of Father Ted stand up to this day as one of the funniest sitcoms ever made. Yeah, no argument from me. How are your sausages? Still browning. How are your cables? Still loose. Well, leave them alone for now. What's your final pitch? My final pitch is Gimme Gimme Gimme, which ran on the BBC between 1999 and 2001. Right. It was produced by Sue Virtue, Beryl's daughter. Okay. And like Beryl's show, this show features two characters behaving badly. Yeah but they are far removed from proto-lads Tony and Gary. Yes, we finally moved away from the two heterosexual men set up. We now have a heterosexual woman and a gay man. Yeah. It was written by Jonathan Harvey, who developed the series with Kathy Burke. Mm-hmm. And Burke starred in it playing loudmouth Linda LaHughes. Yes. Linda lives with her gay flatmate, actor Tom Farrell, played yeah. by James Dreyfus. Yeah. Both are 30-somethings, single and looking for a man. Yes. Now, can you guess which ABBA song was used for the theme tune? Was it Gimme, Gimme, Gimme? It was. <laughs> Tom and Linda met at a nightclub and bonded instantly due to being on ecstasy and they decide to live together. Yeah. And the situation of the series is one long come down in their flat. I mean, a lovely sitcom idea set up and a lovely way of having them trapped together, right? Mm, probably the first and only time this has happened. Yes. Linda is convinced she's beautiful, but is portrayed as not in a very over-the-top way, whether it's her glasses, hair, or clothing choices. I mean, Kathy Burke is such an excellent and generous comic actor. She's and wonderful, isn't she? she will do whatever it takes to get the laugh. Yeah. Linda has crushes on Liam Gallagher, Robbie oh, yeah. Williams, and both male members of Hearsay. <laughs> we can see the passage of time from the late 90s into the early 2000s right there. Yeah, exactly. Two big stars there, and Liam and Robbie. (laughs) 
Tom is melodramatic and believes he's a truly gifted actor, yeah. but constantly fails to get acting roles. Mm-hmm. He did once have a role in EastEnders. He bought a cagoule from Bianca Jackson's market <laughs> store. <laughs> Linda and Tom often amuse each other by pretending to be in different TV shows. Let's play casualty. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, okay, okay. Um, you be the paramedic and I'll be the relative, okay? Okay. All right, all right. I just need to prepare, so don't be too quick. Okay. You ready? No, not yet. I'm preparing. <laughs> okay, I'm ready now. I'm ready now. I'll be general. Where is she? She's over there and I think she's dead. Yes, she is. <laughs> right, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. The bill. Yes, the bill. Okay, okay. all right. Okay, we'll do the bill. I need to prepare, so don't be too quick. Okay. You ready? <sighs> DCI Snatch, Sun Hill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose I'm nicked, am I? Yes, you are. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun we should do that shouldn't we lots of innuendo in that show as we heard from that clip yeah double entendres but i mean frankly often just filth in plain sight <laughs> single entendre filth yes they live at 69 paradise passage <laughs> right and rent the flat from elderly ex-prostitute beryl who lives in the flat upstairs yeah the other regular characters are married couple Jez and Suze, who live in the basement flat. Right. And they are lovey-lovey with each other, much to the disgust of Linda and Tom, mainly because they both fancy Jez. Right. A memorable episode featured Tom getting a job in a World of Sofas commercial with smarmy actor Rick Cheesecloth, who <laughs> Tom got off with. Hi, I'm Rick Cheesecloth. Let me tell you, I know a lot about sofas. Why? Because I speak to thousands of happy customers who buy top-of-the-range seating arrangements every single day. Mm. This feels wonderful. And it's only 499. Yes! 499. And if I buy this weekend, I pay nothing for 25 years. <laughs> the ads at the time were really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Sue Pollard made a guest appearance as Tom's singing teacher and Linda Dresser-like Heidi Honeycomb. Oh, right. Can you guess how they greeted her? Her character's called Heidi. Yes. So did they say, Heidi, hi? <laughs> they did, yes. <laughs> the first two series were on BBC Two, but it moved to BBC One for the final series. Okay, again, a familiar trajectory. Yeah, but I think this time it didn't really work. Right. The show couldn't shock as much as previous series, partly due to the channel move, Although, to be fair, also because we'd seen the situations before. Yeah. The show had a bit of a limited shelf life in that regard. Yeah. In the last episode, Tom gets his big acting break, landing a part in Crossroads, which had just been revived in real life by ITV. <laughs> At its peak, I think it was an outrageously funny show. Mm-hmm. Burke won a British Comedy Award for Best TV Comedy Actress. Oh, this That's is good. nice. It's about fucking time, isn't it? <laughs> I'm really chuffed. It's one well, fuck all, gimme gimme. <laughs> Everyone hates it, apart from the public. I think we've all got to, you know, leave the grouch home and just sit at home and watch telly like normal people and then you'll appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think she's just a wonderful human being. I absolutely adore Kathy Burke. And as she quite recently said on Twitter, I love being woke. It's much nicer than being an ignorant fucking twat. Oh, what a brilliant line. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, brilliant, brilliant actor, Kathy Burke. And of course, now a big time director. Yep. So yeah, great set of pictures. Men Behaving Badly, absolutely fabulous. Father Ted and Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Are there any other shows from the 90s that build on that Steptoe formula that you wish you had have pitched or that you considered pitching? Well, I considered Waiting for God. I think Mm -hmm. that's uh, got a similar format. It's set in a care home, but that features an enthusiastic male lead and a grumpy female lead. Mm -hmm. But no, I think I've I've picked the four shows of the 90s that really sort of take that Steptoe style, that, that idea of two people trapped together and yeah, really build on it. You could have looked to other shows and considered another show about a pretentious son stuck with a scruffy dad in Frasier, perhaps. That's true, yes. But I think the one that you've really missed is my own pitch, which is Bottom. Oh, okay. You're going to show us your bottom. (laughs) Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson met at Manchester University in 1975. They were both big fans of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, uh, Waiting for Godot, Roadrunner Cartoons, Mm. Harold Pinter and The Muppet Show. And if you take all those things and mix them together, then you get the act that they did for decades afterwards. Yeah. While Rick and Adrian are at university, it's the era of punk, which is another important ingredient. Yeah. So the Fall and Buzzcocks are around Manchester, and Rick and Adrian are soaking up the atmosphere, going to lots of gigs, laughing a lot, drinking a lot, and they become best friends. Perfect. Both of them want to be actors. They're studying drama, but they fall in to being comedians. They're in an improv group called 20th Century Coyote. Hmm. There's a lot of them together at first, but it whittles down to just being the two of them as a double act. And, you know, in comedy terms, this is the era of club comedians wearing dinner jackets, telling jokes about mothers-in-law, Irish people and Pakistanis. And that is not Rick and Aid's act at all. No good. But also they're red brick students. They're not footlights people. They're not Oxbridge. And so those two routes into comedy, either the Footlights route or the working men's club comedian routes, are not open to them. So how can they break in? Mm. And they decide to use the punk spirit of the time and use that punk idea of do it yourself. After university, they meet up at weekends, they get drunk and they record themselves trying to be funny. Oh, it's like us doing this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're more drawing on the sort of Derek and Clive tradition. Yeah, you c***. (laughs) And and then they move to London and they tour church halls doing a sketch show. And that's where their act, The Dangerous Brothers, comes from. Right. They're basically a couple of hapless light entertainers who are trying to tell one simple joke. What's green and hairy and goes up and down? A gooseberry in a lift. Classic joke. They can't tell it because they keep getting caught up in the practicalities of it. How does a gooseberry <laughs> get into a lift? How would a gooseberry press the buttons? Where's it trying to go? <laughs> These are very good questions. <laughs> yes. And so they do this act, the two of them, for ages and ages around terrible club nights until they get it super tight. And then they see an ad in the paper looking for acts for a new comedy night in Soho called The Comedy Store. Now, we'll talk more about that in a future episode and also how it leads to a troupe of performers leaving to form their own club night called The Comic Strip. This was Rick and Aid, Alexi Sale, Peter Richardson, Nigel Planer and French and Saunders. And that group of comedians, along with Rick and Aid's old pal from university, Ben Elton, became the vanguard of what was known as new wave comedy or alternative comedy. Right. And that whole scene had a very political edge to it, very lefty, deliberately not sexist and not racist. And it felt very much like it was reflecting the spirits of the time. Channel 4 was preparing to launch and it needed some new talent. And so it offered this troupe, the comic strip, their own show. 
But at the same time, Paul Jackson of the BBC also wants them. And so they go with both. Wow. So from not being on TV at all, they've suddenly got the young ones on BBC Two and the comic strip presents on Channel 4. That's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. So the comic strip presents is made up of these self-contained films. Yeah. Whereas the young ones is subversive, completely revolutionary sitcom. Yeah. One thing I'll say about the young ones is that Alexi Sale pops up every week doing a monologue and notably he plays different characters, but they're always basically the same, which I think is a deliberate throwback to Hancock's Half Hour with Kenneth Williams. Don't be like that. <laughs> After the young ones, Rick and Aid re-established their Dangerous Brothers act and started doing it for a series of Saturday Live on Channel 4. Yep. By this time, the act has become them doing absurd stunts with hazardous items. Hmm. Their characters are starting to become prototypes of the ones which we will see in Bottom. Yeah. But actually, those sketches were the last time they would write together for five years. Wow. Because meanwhile, Ben Elton writes the sitcom Filthy Rich and Catflap. Now, Nigel Planer is also in that, and he'd been in The Young Ones with them. So this show's got three of the main stars and one of the main writers of The Young Ones, but still no one ever seems to quite remember Filthy Rich and Catflap. No, it's just a cult show now, isn't it? Yeah, sort of disappeared, really, from the mainstream. Yeah. Rick and Aid, they do things separately from each other. For example, they're both in episodes of Blackadder, written by Ben Elton. Yes. And from Ben Elton, and working with him on Filthy Rich and Catflap and Blackadder, even though he was younger than them, a few years behind them in university, and Rick in particular used to patronise them a bit, they really did learn from him some of the art of writing sitcom. One of the key things they learn is it's the characters that are funny. The audience has to get to know the characters and understand and preempt their conflicting desires. And that's what matters, not the big, absurd, plot-driven things that could happen. It's obviously all about the situation, but also because you know those characters. Exactly. In 1990, Rick and Aid decide to get back to their double act. And so they say, we'll write something together. And that ends up being bottom. Adrian says, everything we did before bottom felt like it was leading to it. And it's the best thing we ever did. Mm. Originally, they wanted to call the show My Bottom because <laughs> they thought it would be funny if the announcers had to say, next on BBC Two, My Bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they thought it would be funny if people went into work saying, did you see My Bottom last night? Yes. Alan Yentob, senior figure at the BBC, vetoed that. Boo. <laughs> he indeed didn't want it to be called Bottom at all, but that they, I guess they settled on Bottom as a compromise rather than My Bottom. Yeah, it doesn't then refer to the arse, does it? It's because they've reached the bottom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah. The show borrows heavily from Waiting for Godot, the Samuel Beckett play. Yeah. But it also borrows very heavily from Steptoe and Son. In 2018, when Ray Galton died, Aid tweeted, Galton and Simpson were the masters and also very kind. They never sued Rick and I for basically doing a pale copy of Steptoe and Son and Hancock's Half Hour and just adding a bit of mindless violence. Wow. And that's so lovely that, you know, Aid recognises that that's where it came from. Yeah, absolutely recognising their influences. Yeah. There's also a fair bit of Laurel and Hardy in the mix at mm, bottom. Definitely. It was, at the time, the only sitcom written entirely by the performers, except for Faulty Towers. Wow. You'd think there'd be more, wouldn't you? But yeah. It was directed by Ed By, who had worked on The Young Ones and Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, and had directed Red Dwarf. And he was married to Ruby Wax, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. From the third series of Bottom, Bob Spears took over, who, as you mentioned, directed Absolutely Fabulous, and he also directed eight episodes of Comic Strip Presents. It's all connected. It is all connected. So the two main characters in Bottom are Richard Richard, known <laughs> yes. as Richie, played by Rick Mayle, and Edward Elizabeth Hitler, known as Eddie, and played by Aid Edmondson. Such an unfortunate surname. <laughs> 
So these two are unemployed, crude, and perverted flatmates living in Hammersmith in London. Yes. They live in a flat that belongs to Richie's aunt, so neither of them has to pay rent. Convenient. Eddie can't afford to live anywhere else. Mm. Richie is an incredibly unpopular but incredibly needy person. Yeah. So he can't afford to lose Eddie as a friend. So basically they're stuck together because Eddie can't afford to live anywhere else and Richie needs this one friend because he won't get any more. Yeah. Most of the action is set inside their squalid flat. Yes. Although they do occasionally go to other sets like the pub or a sex shop or whatever. Yeah. Richie is a virgin. He's insecure and clueless on how to talk to women. He's desperate to have sex and he always fails. Yeah. But despite being a loser, he sometimes projects a pompous sort of snobbery like Hancock or Harold Steptoe. Heart-stoppingly funny. You really should be on Channel 4. No, ITV. That's the channel for me. Nothing to worry about and plenty of sauce. Really? <laughs> and what particularly edifying programme have the Lights Channel prepared for us this evening that I'm not going to let us watch? It's Miss World, actually. How disgusting. <laughs> and that scene of them fighting over the TV is, of course, straight out of Steptoe. Yes. There's also an episode where Richie and Eddie play chess, but they don't have the full set of chess pieces, so they're using other things. Yes. And that's a direct lift from the same joke in Steptoe and Son. Yeah. Also, Richie delivers these morose monologues that are straight out of Galton and Simpson. I was born at the wrong time, you see. I'm more sort of Elizabethan, you know, 13th century. Shakespeare, the French Revolution, all that. <laughs> uh, I'm just too intelligent, that's my problem. Oh, shit! <laughs> I didn't expect the kettle to be hot. Oh, God, life's horrible. Why haven't I got a girlfriend? I'd look great with a girlfriend. I've never had a girlfriend. Perhaps I'm the new messiah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's it. Get up and walk. <laughs> 50 quid. <laughs> Eddie is more comfortable in his environment. He's a bit happier in his own skin, and he's a little bit more popular. He's got at least two friends. <laughs> at least two. Eddie is also incredibly violent. When the gas man comes to read their meter, which they've been fiddling, Eddie tries to beat him with a cricket bat, but he thinks better of it and instead beats him unconscious with a frying pan. <laughs> Yes. Richie, you see, is a much gentler soul. He just joins in pummeling the gas man with his fists. Oh, that's much kinder. <laughs> yeah. And then when they think they've beaten the gas man to death, they consider eating the body, which you wouldn't get in Steptoe. Although there was always a skeleton in the background on Steptoe. <laughs> That's true. Unlike Steptoe and Son, Richie and Eddie get into lots of slapstick fights with each other. It's cartoon violence, so lots of explosions and electrocutions. Yeah. But when they sit in their flat and play cards, it's incredibly reminiscent of Albert and Harold playing games. And of course, Eddie always outsmarts Richie. What have you got? Right. Three pairs. Do you mean three pairs? You're only allowed five cards. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, two pairs. Well, two and a half pairs. Stand up. No. Come on. I can't. I've got a hernia. No, you haven't. I have. It's all the excitement just gave me a hernia. Look, stand up or I will give you a hernia. All right, all right, all right. Cards. <sighs> Shoes. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Yes, I saw you. Fold them up and put them in there. Underpants. Right, let's get on with the game. Right. What have you got? Five kings. Just like Albert Steptoe. Exactly. 
Incidentally, the next door neighbor, Mr. Rottweiler, is played by Brian Glover, yeah. who also played Flint in Whatever Happened to the Likey Lads. And he played Cyril Heslop in Porridge. More connections. See how it's all connected? Yeah. And when Brian Glover was in the BBC's version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, guess which role he played? Bottom. Exactly. It's all connected. <laughs> Bottom got the highest ratings for any BBC Two comedy until Absolutely Fabulous came along. Then Rick and Aid went on to do a number of Bottom live shows in theatres, which were enormously successful and lucrative. Yeah. Like Steptoe and Son, The Likey Lads, Porridge, and Absolutely Fabulous, they made a movie version, which was called Guesthouse Paradiso. And eventually, they started working on writing a spin-off show called Hooligans Island, but sadly, they fell out with each other during the writing process, and it never made it to air. It's a shame, isn't it? And of course, now there won't be another series, because Rick's no longer with us. That's right. And although they had sort of professionally fallen out and were no longer able to work together, Clearly, there was still a lot of love there. Adrian was one of the pallbearers at Rick's funeral and clearly misses him very much. Yeah. So I've given you my bottom. Well, it was good to see your bottom. And yes, if I'm honest, I'm a bit jealous of your bottom. I'm sort of wishing I'd picked it. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, it's getting a bit uncomfortable in this studio. There's not very much room, what with my sausages frying and your loose cables. I've got nowhere to store this pineapple. It is a bit weird that you decided to fry your sausages in this studio. (laughs) As we sort of wrap up this extended treatise on Steptoe and Sons, Mm. I was thinking we talked about how that format was obviously still a very big deal right through the 90s. Yes. But did it stop after that? I think it arguably did. Peep Show, you could say, is an heir to Steptoe. Yes. But its form is quite different. It doesn't have a laugh track. You can hear the two main characters' interior monologue and all the camera shots are from a character's point of view. So lots of different elements in there. That is the obvious thing about Peep Show is the way it's made being completely different. But yes, I suppose at its heart, it is about Jez and Mark, two quite different personalities living together. Trapped together, trying to escape from each other all the time and always pulled back into the status quo. Yeah. But I think the reason why you don't get so many shows with the same DNA as Steptoe Son now is because of a few particular shows that changed sitcom forever. Yeah. So there was I'm Alan Partridge and The Royal Family in the 90s. Uh-huh. And then The Office in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I think like Steptoe and Son, those three sitcoms were British shows that went on to change the game for sitcom all around the world. I think if you look at Parks and Recreation from America or Colin from Accounts from Australia, they're very influenced by those British sitcoms of the 90s and early 2000s. Definitely. I mean, I think The Office in America was very influenced by The Office in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair to say. The Royal Family and The Office were overseen by head of BBC Entertainment, Paul Jackson, whom we heard about earlier as director of The Young Ones. And he was also an early producer of Bottom. Yeah. Early in his career, he worked as an assistant floor manager on the final series of... Steptoe and Son. Exactly. And when he talks about shows like The Royal Family in The Office, he calls them real comms. And he says that they're taking the Galton and Simpson formula to the extreme by not relying on jokes, but observing real life situations. So maybe they are still heirs to Steptoe, but just in a different way. Yeah, and I suppose it goes back to that comment that Jeffrey Perkins made about Father Ted. You know, you you rely on the real life situation. Yeah, so the influence is still there, but I think it's fair to say that the Steptoe formula no longer dominates. But it did for about 40 years, which is a good run. Well, it's a wonderful legacy, isn't it? It's just some of the funniest comedy ever made. Yeah. 
Do you think any of the shows we've talked about today could still be made from a language and attitudes perspective? Obviously, they would be a bit different these days, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any problem at all with very sweary shows on TV these days. Definitely not. I think you could still do violent shows. I think you'd have to do them a bit differently. I mean, when they did Bottom, you would have naked flames exploding in front of a live studio audience. I don't think it would be allowed now. How was that allowed past the fire safety officer? Yeah, absolutely. I think health and safety has moved on a lot since then. But can I see men behaving badly being made today? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Also, absolutely fabulous. I think it would be different, but I don't think it'd have to be hugely different. Father Ted, I mean, our attitudes have changed. Maybe the Catholic Church isn't held in the esteem that it was, so it wouldn't feel quite as shocking to do that sort of piss take. Yeah. And gimme, 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 it wouldn't have the shock value now that it did then simply because it's been done. Yeah. Having those characters on TV wouldn't be as shocking and surprising, so you couldn't derive comedy from that per se. Gimme, gimme, gimme was about the shock value. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think most of these shows could be made now. Yeah. So... Before I decide which show I'm going to commission, of course, we have to do a quiz to see whether you are a suitable producer. See, it's good when we stick with the format, isn't it? (laughs) Jonathan Harvey, who wrote Gimme Gimme Gimme, also co-wrote a stage musical called Closer to Heaven with which band? I have no idea. Take that. Pet Shop Boys. Oh. In 1994, which band had a number six hit in the charts, putting excerpts of dialogue from Absolutely Fabulous to dance music? Pet Shop Boys. Correct. The actress Natalie Rolls, who played one of Tony's girlfriends in Men Behaving Badly, had her first role as a dancer in the film It Couldn't Happen Here, alongside which band? Could it be the Pet Shop Boys? It was the Pet Shop Boys. Neil Hannon, who wrote the theme song to Father Ted, performed backing vocals to Robbie Williams' song No Regrets, alongside the lead singer of which synth-pop duo? (laughs) Could it be the Pet Shop Boys? It was the Pet Shop Boys, well done. In 1986, Rick Mayle, who would go on to co-write and star in Bottom, was in the video for the Art of Noise single Peter Gunn. Which band was inspired by this single to record the song Hit Music? Pet Shop Boys? Correct. And we've got one more question. Matthew Cottle from Game On supports Arsenal. Right. Their terrace chant 1-0 to the Arsenal is inspired by which band's cover version of the Village People's Go West? Pet Shop Boys. That's right. Would you like to have a few non-Pet Shop Boys related questions? Maybe. (laughs) Pauline McLean reprised her role as Mrs Doyle for a series of adverts that were widely reviled. What was she telling people to go on, go on, go on and do? Oh, I don't know. Um, Some sort of food product she was telling people to eat. No, she was telling them to submit their tax returns. Oh, blimey. The American remake of Men Behaving Badly starred which Saturday Night Live alumnus? Um, Is it Ben Stiller? It was Rob Schneider. Oh, yeah, okay. Absolutely Fabulous was co-produced by French and Saunders Production Company. What's that company called? Oh. Saunders in French? (laughs) Yes, they reversed their names, which, again, we never do. (laughs) Finally, who played Eddie's mate Dave Hedgehog in Bottom and Adina's ex-husband Marshall Turtle in Absolutely Fabulous? Oh, I can picture his face and I can't think of his name. I don't know. It's Christopher Ryan, who, of course, course, was also in The Young Ones. 
You scored one out of four, which isn't really very good. Yeah, but I got five out of six Pet Shop Boys questions. That makes six out of ten. No, I'm not giving you the points for the Pet Shop Boys questions, especially as you got the first one wrong. Oh, come on, that's not fair. Okay, let's call it two out of five then, which is still not very good. Okay, but you have to judge me on the quality of the pitches. I pitched great shows. Well, let's see about that. It's time for me to opine on which show I wish to commission. So you've brought me Men Behaving Badly, Absolutely Fabulous, Father Ted and Gimme Gimme Gimme. And they are up against my bottom. Yes. Men Behaving Badly was a long-running show that attracted a big audience. A mainstream hit which nonetheless had a bit of naughtiness about it. Yeah. Just a little bit too mainstream for my taste. Really? The other shows that you've pitched have been a bit more exciting and a bit more envelope-pushing. So I am going to rule out Men Behaving Badly early doors. Wow, I mean, I thought wanking on Christmas Day would be right up your street. (laughs) Absolutely fabulous and gimme, gimme, gimme. I'm going to consider alongside each other. Right. They were both very loud, very in-your-face shows. They were both shows that attracted a very large female audience and a very large gay audience and put something on TV that hadn't really been on TV before, challenged people and uh, drew attention to themselves. Yeah. And I like that about both of them. But as with anything that's particularly loud, I feel that it can outstay its welcome. Yes. And I can find both absolutely fabulous and gimme gimme a little bit irritating sometimes well you, you don't have to show all the episodes on cracking tv you know we, we could just look at the the classic years i like both of them mm. but i'm not going to commission either oh so you're left with father ted mm, now come on that is a brilliant show and i'm left with bottom yes father ted is one of the greatest sitcoms ever made absolutely very very funny full of classic memorable moments full of laugh out loud moments as well yes but your brief today was to bring me something that builds on the steptoe and son formula and that formula is there in father ted absolutely there are two of them stuck on an island together. yeah they've moved it to an island we've not had that before There are other characters stuck together with them. I've allowed for the fact that those other characters aren't strictly speaking characters in their own right. I'm being generous with that. When I compare it with Bottom, though, Bottom really is Galton and Simpson for the 90s. Right. It's also a hilarious show. It's also full of standout comic moments. Some excellent performances. Rick and Adrian, both brilliant in it. Rick Mail in particular, who I think is the greatest comic actor and performer of his time and also they've got those Hancock style monologues and they've got that very clear Albert and Harold dynamic between the two of them when I asked you to come here with a 90s uh, to Steptoe and Son I was expecting you to show me some bottom action and I was very disappointed that you didn't well come on Father Ted is good you know you want to commission Father Ted go on go on go on go on No, I'm afraid on this occasion you have not filled my slot, and so I'm going to have to give it to my own bottom. No, 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 no. So look, Luke, you're very keen on the format of this podcast, so you know what happens now. You've lost. Remind me, what happens next? Uh, we, We don't always need to follow the format, John. What's the format? You throw me out the office. And what else? I have to apologize for wasting your time. Right. Get out. 
bloody format. Yes, all right. And? Go on. I'm sorry for wasting your time. Thank you very much. But before I go... Ow, you bastard! You got me! What are you doing to that red-hot frying pan full of fat? (laughs) Ah! Right, you little shit. Where are those electric cables? So that was 90s Airs to Steptoe on Cracking TV. It was produced and presented by me... Hey, you can't do the credits, you lost. Ow! It was produced and presented by that proper dick, Luke Sluman. Ah! And the total tosser, John Furlong. Ah! A rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an eye. Oh, that's the perfect place to store my pineapple. Now I'll get you out my office. No, no, not the window. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog factual entertainment production. Knobhead. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. You get born, you keep your head down, and then you die. If you're lucky. Oh, come on. There must be more to it than that. Well, as the telly.